Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 000134 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I will be your host through your eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands, which I believe, or I've been told, you can see from space. I've never been to space myself, but I have friends that have been to space and they tell me you can see it from there. So that's uh, that's pretty special. Uh, And as we know, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you to Sam for an excellent summer edition of Double Bounce. He's going to be with you for the next four weeks or so. Always enjoy Sam on the airwaves. So I'll be listening in on Tuesday afternoons, wherever I am, to uh, check out what he's got to lay down for us to pick up. So this is the last show of 2021. We've had our downs. Uh, to say it's been a frustrating year is an understatement. The uh, pandemic, the exploitation of the pandemic by vested interests, the tragic deaths, the sickness, the stupidity that stupidity that comes along with all of that has made for a year full of frustration. Of course, on the other side of all that has been the thousands of people, leaders, educators, healthcare workers, uncles and aunties that have been working tirelessly for the last two years to make sure that people are safe and get the treatment they need and know the risk associated with their action or inaction. It's the people on the front line that we should remember through all of this, people like Kellyanne Andy, who will be on the show shortly. She's the CEO of Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services. In short, their mission is to provide refuge accommodation and specialist family violence service to Aboriginal women and their children. Try doing that during a pandemic. Yeah, and you obviously won't read about it in the newspapers because all the oxygen is taken up by man babies and cashed up bogans that infest the city every weekend, shouting freedom while wanting to overthrow our democratically elected government. 2021's been full of that crap, I'm afraid. Um, remember, Remember when a bunch of blokes... Uh, intimidated motorists and meandered up to the top of the Westgate and murdered a rendition of horses? What the hell was that about? And what was going on with the people on the front line that have been looking after their own? That's what's been happening on the converse side of this, is that people have been looking after each other, the vast majority of people. And it's those people we should remember at the end of uh, 2021. So in that vein, in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by the co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, Marcus Stewart. Not only is the Assembly working methodically and judiciously to negotiate a path forward for treaty in this state we call Victoria, but they're also using their platform given to them by First Nations people in Victoria to advocate on other issues. And one of those issues being something that we've covered extensively on this program a number of times, and that is, of course, the Raise the Age campaign. The fact that you can still lock up a 14-year-old child as part of a, the criminal justice system is an affront to any civil-minded person and is an issue that we will continue to talk about until it is an issue no more. So in this show, this year and going forward, these will be the issues 
that we and people that we will continue to focus on while the madness and performative squealing goes on around us. This program will be a harbour for what's really important for those at the wrong end of the social justice arc in this country. So uh, that's the mission, and you're listening to it on 102.7 Triple R FM through to 8 o'clock live from Radio City Docklands. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And so to the first interview of this evening. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show that um, the mission is dedicated to people at the end of the social justice arc in this country. And you could argue that those at the bottom of it all in this country are Aboriginal women. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare only last week reported that a quarter of those on hospital stays due to family and domestic violence from 2010 and 11 to 2018 and 19 showed 28% of those admitted were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, despite Indigenous people only making up 3.3% of the overall population. A similar figure could be attributed to the number of Aboriginal women in Victoria's prisons. They make up a third of the overall prison population, despite only being around about 3% as well. Of course, a sad and devastating result of this overrepresentation is a high level of black deaths in custody, both men and women across the country, including here in Victoria and including recently and tragically at the Dame Phillips Frost Centre in Melbourne's West. These numbers are devastating for what is ostensibly a matriarchal culture. CEO of Elizabeth Morgan House, Aboriginal Women's Services Incorporated, Kellyanne Andy, is with us to talk about some of these issues. Kellyanne and her small team are on the front line when it comes to providing secure refuge accommodation and specialist family violence services to Aboriginal women and their children. Their support also extends to parents of Aboriginal children as well as partners and ex-partners of Aboriginal people. And I'm very pleased to say that Kellyanne is once again on the line with us. Kellyanne, welcome back to the mission. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, first of all, how have the last two years been for you guys at Elizabeth Morgan House? How, how has the pandemic affected what you do? For us, we've remained open and operating as per normal during the pandemic. We, we left our doors open. We did see a number of increased demand across our services, across all of our programs, and we have like five programs. So our crisis come, which supports women 24-7, remained open, operating fully at capacity. Our intake seen a high number of new referrals and new places that referred to us, which was great for our women because we got to arrange better support and educate other services about what we do. We were able to build, exist, build on our existing relationships um, for better outcomes for all of our women and children that we support within EMH. Um, we had to adapt ourselves for our staff did an amazing job juggling the demands of our service, the supporting their families and homeschooling was a massive learning curve for all of us. Yeah. But our staff remained open. Our clients that we support had nowhere else to go. Some people would come into our centre just for showers to use our laundry because nowhere else was opened. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really shown how... 
um, I guess how cute some of these issues are when you when you throw the the, the pandemic on on top of it, it really adds a, a layer of complexity to it to us to it all. Have you noticed uh, a, a change in people's circumstances during the pandemic? Has there been an increase in numbers, or has it been as it was before, but just with the added complexity of accommodation during a pandemic? Everything like our our parents just as much as our like our women who are parents struggled with homeschooling, meeting the demand of trying to get resources for their children to do homeschooling and online classes. Um, so we have, we helped out across that area. Uh, we definitely had a demand in um, cases of crisis ACOM, which we've never seen before. So we've done a lot of supporting women in crisis um, hotels, staying in their cars because there was nowhere else to send them. But, yeah, so we were just able to adapt how we operate as a service and meet the needs of our clients by doing different things like FaceTime, um, lots of phone calls, lots of just emotional support as well was an increase. Yeah, I guess just having someone for um, a lot of these women just to talk to and get some moral support through through their crisis must mean the world to them just by, by itself. Definitely, and our after-hours number, so we, we run an after-hours number that comes on at 5 to 9am the next morning. We've seen an increase of services and women using that that line. Lots of services were doing secondary consults. Women just had our number and were just calling for a yarn. Yeah, um, I, can, I can imagine. Those, those numbers that I quoted um, in the introduction, Kellyanne, from the Australian Institute and Health and Welfare around the numbers of uh, Aboriginal people presenting um, or, or staying in hospital as a result of domestic violence being, you know, around a third of all hospital stays related to domestic violence being Aboriginal um, people. Is that something that um, mirrors with what you see on the ground week to week? Definitely. It's like the numbers are alarming that yeah, if we only make up three point I think it's around three point three percent of the population. Yep. But yet the increased numbers of not only are our women's been hospitalized, but their children are being removed because of being hospitalized and then not going into the lack of home like housing isn't like release to housing is option like very hard for women and children as well. And the number of kids that are being sort of removed from uh, their, their their parents or their mother, uh, how many would you say are going into kinship care as a part of out-of-home care? Because that's obviously the best place for them to go if they are being um, removed. How, how many would you estimate? What's your feel around the amount that actually go into kinship care or just go straight into some sort of out-of-home care? Um, not 100% sure on the figures, but I know 88% of ch- children in Victoria are being, most of them are removed due to family violence and homelessness. Yeah. Where the lucky ones have got family that are able to look after them and are eligible. That's the perfect place for them. But some people don't have that luxury of family and kin, so their children are placed into out-of-home care. And what we see... Kellyanne, and correct me at any time, I'm, I'm, I'm just um, going on the experience I've had chatting with various people throughout the year about some of these issues, is that out-of-home care, if it's not done well, it's obviously a, a gateway to the criminal justice system, and, and that leads to discussions around the raise the age debate too that uh, needs to happen. But if, if out-of-home care is not done correctly, it means that kid can end up in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and, and that show us that most children who are removed from mums end up in that system. 
Yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely tragic. Just the amount of trauma on so many levels that some of those kids must have experienced and continue to go through. And then, of course, the prison system is the worst place for these kids to, to, to end up, to, to heal and to get better. Yeah, there's a lack of culturally safe healing programs, not like the modern mainstream society healing is not always right for Aboriginal people. Like cancer and yes, one-on-one is great for some people, but other people need other options as like returning to country, being with family. It's not one, one set fits all. Yeah. it's um... We need to work, we need to be on their journey, not us, have them on our journey, their services. Yeah, and, and throughout um, modern history, Aboriginal people and communities have shown a propensity to stand up and try and create some of these service services or tailor some of these services to, to meet our local mob's needs. And it's important that it continues to happen, but it's more important than ever that it happens to to continues to happen on the on the front line with services around domestic violence and women's shelters and um, out-of-home care for, for, for young Aboriginal um, kids. Yep, definitely. Like mob know how to look after mob. We've been doing yep. it for a really long time. Um, I think there's there's room for both areas, and and we need to work more on prevention as well. But we also need to have stable housing, safe housing, affordable housing. Now, the government last year, I think it was in March last year, announced an investment in some um, social and, or, and affordable housing. What's it looking like on the on the ground in terms of uh, Aboriginal women's access to some of that housing? I think a small percentage will have access to them services and them houses, but at the same time, the, there's a whole community across Victoria that also need housing. So mm. hopefully there's a nice pool for Aboriginal women. Out of all the issues that have arisen over the last couple of years, um, is there a particular issue that you didn't see coming? Is there an issue that surprised you in terms of the way it manifested itself? I think the the, the lockdowns were a struggle for everybody. I didn't think all of us thought we would be the longest state in the world to experience what we did. Um, and I just like yeah, congratulate my staff for turning up every day and supporting our women. Oh, you've got an amazing team and you do um, amazing work in, in the best of circumstances. And it's not a big team, but it's um, it's a deadly team. And, um, you know, by, by all accounts, you're, you, you do fantastic work. So I'd like to thank you for, for the work that you do. Um, another issue that you've been passionate about, Kalyan, is, of course, the, the, the level of incarceration of Aboriginal women in Victoria. And we're seeing the numbers continue to grow across across the state. Um, what, are, what are some of the other options that exist instead of throwing women in prison? I think there needs to be a range of services prior to people going into prison. Like, there has to be better ways for people to heal in a safer environment. Um, also, the struggle that we have with some of our women is they can't access services unless they're sentenced. So everybody, a lot of women in there are on remand, and by the time they're sentenced, They've already served their time, so that means that it's a missed opportunity for services like ours to get in there and support people um, and run programs within the prison because there's a whole chunk of women that aren't eligible for supports. And we re- remind everyone that there actually isn't a dedicated um, built remand centre for, for women in this state. And so some of the, the, the women that, um, an Aboriginal woman that are going into some of these uh, uh, 
prisons are going into, you know, uh, maximum security prisons, mixing with uh, hardened criminals, and they might not have they might have only got in there for, for not paying a fine or for some other yeah, um, for matter. Really petty crimes. Yeah. And so what what happens is we have some of people going in there with petty crimes, mixing with hardened criminals in some of the most stringent and tight prison, prison um, uh, services that we have in this state. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? Definitely. And I think one of the biggest things for us, what we've been working, trying to change is, the women in prison don't have adequate care for their um, medical needs. We've found that in the last, in a couple of deaths in custody that's just recently happened. If they had the, the respect to get medical care much earlier, who knows where we could have been. But it's vital that yeah, our women have access to better cultural, culturally safe care while in prison if that's where they have to be. And so much of this is or should be a health response to, to the, some of the issues that women are facing either before or during their custodial sentence? Definitely. Like, every person should be entitled to health care, regardless of where you are. Now, you guys, um, you guys being, and I should remind the listener, we're speaking with uh, Kellyanne Andy, who was the CEO of Elizabeth Morgan House Aboriginal Women's Services Incorporated. Now, um, Elizabeth Morgan House has got behind a campaign, the Homes Not Prisons um, campaign. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we got behind that because the expansion of prisons is just, it's not needed. I think that money could have went into topping services up to provide post-pre- prevention even, services to women so that they don't make it into prison. Um, I think there's like for the amount that was released, it's going to have got 109 new cells at Dane Phyllis, which could have been probably around 1,000 homes out in the community if that's where the money was stifled to. Yeah, that was at, that was at a cost. The management units, the 20-bed management units at Dane Phyllis Frost uh, come at a cost of $188.9 million. Australian dollars, um, like you said, how, how many places could you build for that for that amount of money? Yeah, I think we worked it up to roughly around a thousand. Yeah, it's, a thousand it, kind of dwellings. It really says something about the you know industrial prison complex that we we're building in this state and around Australia that that's where funds go because that by no means is an investment in society. An investment in society is actually building safe housing for vulnerable people. And a lot of the data, a lot of the research shows that if you do that, those houses eventually pay for themselves as families are able to get themselves back back up on their feet and be, become active members of society and their communities. Definitely. It also helps the next generation going through this cycle of trauma and incarceration because they've been able to be raised somewhere stable? Uh, well, yeah, if you want to be part of that um, particular campaign, there is a website and it's called homesnotprisons.com.au and you can go there to actually sign uh, the petition or you can go there to actually donate to get behind the campaign. So that's homesnotprisons.com.au. Come, you're coming to the end of another very, very tumultuous year, Kellyanne. Um, you got any plans over the, over the break? Are you going to take much time off? We don't have the luxury of taking lots of time off because this is a busy time for us in family violence. Um, so, yeah, we we have skeleton staff on. Our refuge will, will remain open 24-7 and then our outreach team will just have a few days break and be back on board.
And we see a peak um, of family and domestic violence issues around this time of year, like like you said. What, what sort of increase do, do we see in numbers around this time of year? Definitely increase. I um, couldn't tell you off the top of my head because it's been different for the last two years. It's been hard to nail it down because of the, is it due to the pandemic or is it just due to society, even with people's yeah expectations of each other are changing? Yeah, it seems just just seems like it's a very broad general combat, um, comment. There's, there's a lot of anger and frustration across society at the moment, and that's that manifests itself in all sorts of ways. I'm sure, and and, and tragically, domestic and family violence is is one of those ways that it does manifest itself. Um, Elizabeth uh, Morgan House um, is available and open for donations too, isn't it? Definitely, yep, via our website. So, yeah, if you want to support people that are on the absolute front line of what we talk about on this show week in, week out, I encourage you this Christmas to go to mhaws.org.au. That's e-m-h-a-w-s.org.au, e-m-h-a-w-s.org.au, and show some support for the fabulous team at Elizabeth Morgan uh, House, Aboriginal Women's Services Incorporated. They don't get a break this Christmas. They're on the front line seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and their work needs and deserves to be supported. And Kellyanne, thank you so much for your time. Um, I was um, cyber-stalking you this afternoon as part of my research. Um, who do you barrack for? Are you there, Kellyanne? Yep, sorry, Melbourne. Yeah, no, nah, that's what I that's what I was worried about. Yeah, um, <laughs> I waited thirty years for the grand final. <laughs> so that must that must have been a bit of a silver lining, and whatever otherwise it's been a pretty crappy year, eh? Oh, it would have been nice to get to the grand final, but yeah, it was a much deserved win for the boys. Well. I'm a Tigers man myself, but I have to say that I'm happy for you. So uh, uh, enjoy the summer. Enjoy uh, being reigning premiers for for another year. But more importantly, look after yourself. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the people out there really appreciate it too. No Having me. No worries. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You're listening to The Mission on 102.7 Triple R FM, or maybe you're listening on the National Indigenous Radio Service across Australia, or maybe you're tuning in via Courier Radio. You're all welcome. Hope you're enjoying the show. Now, um, we've spoken about the Raise the Age campaign a number of times on this program we call the mission, and it's something that we will continue to do until governments here and everywhere across the country do something about it. Kids as young as 10 years old can be locked up as part of the criminal justice system. Now, there is wide consensus from legal and medical experts that the age of criminal responsibility should be raised to at least 14 years of age. Joining the chorus of voices calling the age of criminal responsibility to be raised is none other than the First People's Assembly of Victoria, the elected team charged with negotiating treaty here in Victoria. Uh, Co-chair of the Assembly and friend of the program is Marcus Stewart. Marcus is a Tunnerong man from central Victoria. He has extensive experience in Aboriginal affairs, mainly in the traditional owner space, and I'm very, very pleased to say he's on the line now. Marcus, welcome back to the mission. No, great to be here. 
Now, you and Auntie uh, Gerald Atkinson, your fellow co-chair, have both written to the Attorney General, Jacqueline Symes, asking that the government should show some compassion and raise the age. What prompted you two to write that letter? Yeah, we we did write to her um, late last week or early this week. Every day sort of merging into the next, um, yeah, getting sure. closer to Christmas. But um, we, I guess, we were prompted by a continued conversation by our members at our chamber meetings, but also you know driven by our community consultations. When we're out talking about the architecture, you know, the aspiration of treaty. One thing that I've personally heard in the consultations I've been doing is. The, um, the Raise the Age campaign that's been run and that there's been such inaction. Um, I assumed, uh, probably naively, that this would have been done this year. Um, but then to hear that the government have decided to go with 12 and, and not 14 and there's just been such a, a lack of action, we wanted to make it really clear in regard to something that's been concerning the First People's Assembly of Victoria, and that's government putting off reform that needs to happen now under the guise or under the cloak of treaty. It really is flabbergasting to think why this has taken so long. This, this, the Raise the Age campaign has been around for several years now, and we've just seen a continued lack of action from jurisdictions all across the place. And I guess from a treaty perspective, Marcus, it makes it more difficult to negotiate or eventually negotiate treaty with a government that's basically locking up your kids. The challenge for us is treaty is going to deliver long-term reform. And what what I can't fathom is the fact that this state locks up 10-year-old kids, kids that are yet to lose all their, you know, their baby teeth, um, mm. you know, kids that, um, you know, and from our perspective, are nine times more likely to end up in juvenile detention being Aboriginal children. It just... It doesn't make sense and it's completely unacceptable. So uh, as you said earlier, we wrote to the Attorney General and basically said, you've been a champion, you know, for us and have walked next to us and now we're asking you not to turn your back back on us to actually commit to making this change because it can't be held off until treaty. The experts medical experts, legal rights experts are saying the age needs to be raised to 14. We saw the Andrews Labor government commit to public intoxication and the repealing of that legislation. Yep. But setting a date of where then they could build the back of house uh, infrastructure. So when that went live, there were the supports, uh, the responses in place for it to be successful. There is no reason why the Attorney-General can't commit tomorrow or as early as tomorrow to set a date to raise the age. Government have run out of excuses and it needs to happen. And it's not something that I would imagine any government's going to lose uh, votes over. It's not, it's not something that's going to be politically damaging to any government if you, if you raise the age. I think fair-minded people all over the shop, um, from no matter what background people come from, I would suggest, would find the idea of locking up children um, as abhorrent. Um, you're, of course, tasked with bringing, um, I guess, negotiating treaty to, the, to this state. But you've you've thrown your hat in the ring um, a few times now in terms of advocating 
on behalf of community in real time about about some of these issues. You've done it with this issue in particular, of course, just recently. Is that something that um, uh, you and Auntie Geraldine in particular will continue to do as we go through this process? If it's something that we hear loud and clear from our mob, our community out there, if it's something that our members are bringing to the table, such as you know building on the the decades of advocacy and the, the generations of activism on stolen generation redress and a truth-telling process, then you know we feel an obligation and responsibility to to make our our voice heard and amplify amplify the voice of our community on this on this matter because um, we can't accept for a second that you know government aren't going to move on raising the age to 14. We know they've come out in the paper this morning, I read in the age, that they've committed to raising it to 12. And all that's saying is that, okay, when you graduate primary school and go to high school, you're eligible to be locked up, you know, between concrete walls and behind iron bars. And I think that's completely unacceptable for any kid. I mean, tragically, the last week in a bit, um, under the most awful of circumstances, our minds as a community have been collectively focused on what year six students uh, look like and, and, and the way that they, they behave. And the fact that, you know, you're raising the age to 12 and that you're locking up kids of that age is just a, it's just something that's kind of unfathomable. What chance does a kid have if you put them into the criminal justice system before, like you said, they've lost their front teeth, before they have any sort of street smarts whatsoever, before they have a chance to have real role models. It's, it's a real problem. So if you want to support that campaign um, at home, just go and Google Raise the Age and you will find a, a whole range of um, uh, websites and uh, social media platforms in which you can actually support that campaign and it's something we'll continue to support on this particular program. I uh, Just turning back to the work of, um, of the First Peoples Assembly, uh, Marcus, um, you've got a, well, you're actually seeking some feedback on a model for the Treaty Authority, the body that will oversee future treaty negotiations between the First Peoples and the Victorian government. Um, tell us a little bit about that model and tell us about um, how that model was arrived at. Yeah, so pretty exciting. Um, we're getting to the sort of pointy end of the negotiations now, and so we've got a live discussion paper out there, which has just been built on our communication. Uh, sorry, our consultations to date with uh, with the mob. And ultimately, what we've heard to date is that the need the the treaty authority, which will be the independent umpire, which will basically keep government accountable to these negotiations and bring parties together. Um, it has to be Aboriginal-led, it has to be independent, and it has to hold cultural authority. So we're out there now with some key questions because everything we've developed, everything we've designed has been in the shape of, um, of community's aspiration. And we just look at the, the York Justice Commission and the, and the terms of reference there, mm. considered, you know, international best practice. And that's because it was, you know, our grassroots mob that were, were driving the design and will incorporating their aspiration to make sure it delivered, um, it delivered big and delivered what they wanted. Yeah. So what you're doing now is you're asking for for feedback from from mob um, in, in particular before the 10th of January of next year. Um, if people want to actually contribute to the paper and, and give feedback to the assembly, just go to firstpeoplesvic.org. It's, um, not, it's not firstpeoples.vic.org, it's firstpeoplesvic.org. 
um, all one word, and you can actually go and um, contribute there to to what is a, an ongoing process. And so there's three parts to it, isn't there, Marcus Stewart, the uh, co-chairperson of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria? There is the Treaty Authority, um, then there's a treaty negotiation framework, which, which will set the ground rules for, for treaty negotiations. And then there's a self-determination fund. Now, this is a, a really interesting um, part of it all. It, the self-determination fund is a financial resource that will empower First Peoples across the state to play on a level playing field when it comes to some of the legal frameworks that, that will need to be put in place to negotiate tr- treaty. Um, tell us about the self-determination fund. Yeah, it's always one of interest, um, that's for sure, and one thing that we'll be consulting on as well. It's the ultimate opportunity to push the bureaucrats and the bureaucracy and the politicians out of our lives. It'll be an independent revenue that'll fund our treaty architecture, which will be the authority, as we we spoke about, the framework, which lays out the ground rules, um, but fund the process and treaty negotiations into the future. So we're not reliant on government election commitments or, you know, government funding or just cutting funding uh, because I don't agree with the process. It's completely stand, or it stands independently and it's a source of, of funding that creates treaty making in Victoria as part of our part of the Victorian furniture. So it's what we know, it's just part of the norm, like we understand local governments and um, it's a unique opportunity and a significant opportunity that we have to get right. But again, that'll be designed and developed um, by our mob. This is a, a ground-up process. We obviously vote on what we hear from those who have elected us and entrusted us to lead us on, uh, lead them on this journey. Um, but it's important that everyone, everyone's voice is heard in this process. How hard has it been to get to some of those voices during the pandemic? So it always fascinates me what you know different parts of of our business, different parts of our society, how the pandemic has has affected uh, your work. How has it affected the work of the assembly? Yeah, if I said it wasn't tough, I'd be lying. But it, it's been tough. Um, we were lucky that we moved to sort of a digital platform really quickly, and we're already doing it actually before the pandemic. Uh, we're holding a lot of our committee meetings online and via Zoom and whatnot. Um, but, I mean, it's been tough, but since we've been, you know, we've gone through all these lockdowns and you kind of think, you know, what does tomorrow look like given you don't know when you're coming out? But um, Treaty has given our community through our consultations and us as members the ability to dream of what Treaty looks like or what life looks like with Treaty. What's 5, 10, 15 years? So we've been lucky in that sense to be really looking at what does life look like once we've got treaties in place and we're seeing, you know, whether it's a statewide treaty and traditional owner treaties being negotiated. Um, but it's always hard. It's, you know, running consultations online is difficult. Our mob expect to be out mm. face-to-face. You're having the yards with them. And that's a process that we're getting better and better at as members and our team uh, in the operations are out there also having information sessions and sharing information, enrolling mob because, you know, we're out there saying, you know, if you don't enrol to vote, you're not going to be able to elect the person who you think best represents your voice. So we're encouraging all mob out there, get on the roll, enrol to vote, uh, vote at the next election, which is only two years away. But consultations are tough and we're just getting better at it. Um, 
but it's not going to be easy. We've still got a challenge ahead of us. COVID's still around, um, but we've got a, a, a huge by-election coming up uh, on, on your country in, yes. uh, at the start well, of next Victoria. year. And, yeah, so we've got some big, huge plans happening uh, up there, which are pretty exciting, which we're, we're keen to announce in January. But um, So watch this space. It's going, to be a, it's going to be a cracker of a couple of months, that's for sure. Uh, looking forward to hearing all about it. Um, uh, so that's basically it for you. You've got about another week um, of this year to go. Have you got any plans over, over the festive season? How long do you guys get a break for? Uh, do we? Do we? I guess the question is, do we really get a do break? You? Um, yeah. you know, we'd like to like to come up for air, but um, look, we've got we've been as the inaugural first people as assembly of Victoria. We've got a four year term, and the next assembly will be three years. Um, so one thing we committed to is not wasting a single day, let alone minutes. So we're getting to work and making sure that anything we develop and design is in the aspiration of what our mob are telling us they want to see and they want they want it to be. So um, we'll take a breath over Christmas, um, recharge the batteries, and then be back at it at the start of January, ready to um, ready to go hard and fight for what for what our mob want at the uh, at the negotiation table. Well, we'll be following it very closely on this show, and I'll be following it uh, personally too, because it's such a important and interesting, but also just a fascinating time to be alive. I guess this is the first opportunity we've ever had to do anything like this. So, um, just from a, a pure intellectual perspective, it's it's fascinating just by itself. But it's something that all Victorians, at some point, will need to start forming some perspectives on, some forming some views on, because this just isn't a black issue. This is a black and white issue. So um, continue the great work, Marcus. Uh, make sure you have um, a decent break and uh, we'll speak to you in the new year. But thank you once again for coming on the mission. Uh, thanks for your time, bros. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.